companies certainly say that they are recognizing what people are dealing with, whether it's a sick family member or these childcare issues, they kind of can't look away because it's so global, right? Like before it was maybe like you have to support one employee who's going through one specific thing, or you don't even know because they don't share it. But now everyone sees it. It's like hard to ignore. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. I've been in the thought leadership business for a very long time. And one of the things that happens is you get interviewed a lot, which is kind of interesting because, you know, now I'm in the business of interviewing other people for the SIDCAST. Now, if you've never been interviewed by a journalist, well, there's one really kind of good thing to keep in mind, and that's that journalists are actually people too. They're just trying to do their job. They're trying to get their story written, typically under a really tight deadline. And they're uh, doing it in a very difficult industry, one that's really been totally transformed by the digital uh, revolution. You know, it's true, you know, having done this for so many years, that occasionally there's a journalist that calls and has all these questions and doesn't really have a firm grasp of, you know, the underlying phenomenon they're asking about. And I have to spend time educating them on it, which is fine. But the truth is, it's much more exciting when you talk to journalists that are real pros of what they do. And I have been lucky, I think, over the years in that respect. I work with, and that is the right word, because you're helping them craft a story that helps them. But, you know, let's face it, it's probably going to help you as well. So I work with some pretty amazing journalists. Sarah Green Carmichael, uh, Jenna McGregor, Jennifer Merritt, who was also my editor at the BBC when I had a weekly column there. Rick Newman, Heidi Moore, and my guest today... On the sitcast, Rachel Feinzig from the Wall Street Journal. I have to say it was a real treat to turn the tables on Rachel by uh, me being the one asking questions. You know, I've always said that if you read a lot, you're probably going to be able to write at least a little bit. And it's uh, actually quite true with journalists. The better you are at asking questions, the better you are at answering them. And so it seemed in my conversation with Rachel. Her beat in her column at the Wall Street Journal is officially called Work and Life. When you think about it, That pretty much encompasses uh, everything, (laughs) Uh, including most of the topics that I uh, like to talk about in the SIDCAST, which really leaves lots of discretion for Rachel to choose topics she wants to write about. And we talked about that. We talked about why she chose what she chose, why she chooses what she chooses, and some of those stories. For the last eight months, some of those topics, some of those columns, of course, have been about covid but also on how Rachel and her own family are coping. And that's sometimes been, in Rachel's columns, a springboard for talking to lots of other people about their experiences, balancing careers, parenting, and even, uh, you know, a piece on the pandemic blues that was the subject of a column Rachel wrote uh, last month. Before becoming the work and life columnist of the Wall Street Journal, Rachel finds it covered management and career trends as a reporter for that paper's management bureau for something like seven years We've been in touch many times for various topics on management and career trends, things I do and have done in my research and consulting for years. And she's written about well, everything from the changing role of executive assistants to people who get tattoos of their company logo. That's kind of extreme, isn't it, to get a tattoo of your company logo? And what happens when you change jobs? 
What if you go from one competitor to another? You know, what if you go from UPS to FedEx? What are you going to do with that UPS tattoo? What happens when you go from Google to uh, Microsoft? What do you do with the Google tattoo? Anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent, but it's kind of interesting. Rachel joined Dow Jones as a reporting assistant in 2008, which is quite a year to start given the financial crisis. And lo and behold, she covered bankruptcy and restructuring during that crisis and its aftermath. She's a graduate of University of Pennsylvania, where she was uh, really a journalist from day one. She was the managing editor of the student newspaper, The Daily Pennsylvanian. One of the things I really admire about Rachel is her openness. And that includes her openness to write about very personal parts of her own life. And she's written about, for example, what it was like to have a husband on the front lines of the battle against COVID, especially in those early months in March and April in New York City, in New York City region, when things were really dire. And she's written about her own personal challenges with pregnancy, the most personal of all stories for a woman and for a couple. I was touched by those stories. And I know many, many other people were as well. There's a lot to talk about with uh, Rachel on this episode of the SIDCAST. This being Thanksgiving week, I really wanted to have a guest on the SIDCAST who you could imagine, you know, at least in the old days when we did such a thing, but you can imagine sitting around your own Thanksgiving day table and having there across from you, someone who you know, might be calling out to one of her kids at one point or joking with a friend, but also engaging in a fascinating conversation about some of the things that she's been doing and that lots of people care about. That's Rachel Feinzig, and that's also pretty close to what you know, I'm trying to do in this episode of the SIDCast. I hope this Thanksgiving is as peaceful and as safe for you and your family as can possibly be. Here is Rachel Feinzig. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein in beautiful downtown Hanover, New Hampshire, sitting today and talking to Rachel Feinzig. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you. And uh, we were saying we're kind of flipping the uh, switch. You have interviewed me on occasion for some stories you've done, but I get to interview you today and you're used to doing all the interviewing. So this could be interesting. I am totally used to doing all the interviewing. Yeah. Um, it is a total reversal. So you're at the Journal, of course. And how long have you uh, been at the Wall Street Journal? I joined Dow Jones, which is our parent company, in 2008, really right before the recession hit. And then I, I kind of switched over to covering management at the Journal proper in 2013. So I mean, it's been a while now. So before 2013, your articles would not appear in the Journal? Sometimes they would. I mean, I started out, my very first job was as a reporting assistant. My very first job in journalism was as a reporting assistant covering bankruptcy for um, a daily bankruptcy newsletter. And so occasionally our stories would get pulled into the journal. And I still remember my very first like teeny tiny story that got pulled into the, the journal about Mrs. Fields cookies in 2008. So just like, you know, occasionally things would get pulled. And then by the time I was, you know, kind of a little more senior in that role, I, I was sometimes writing just directly for the journal covering various bankruptcy cases. So, you know, Wall Street Journal is at the top of the um, pecking order, Financial Times and Wall Street Journal, as far as newspapers are concerned globally. How do you get to write for the journal? I mean, that's like writing for the New York Times. It's quite, it's equivalent. Well, like I said, I was kind of like at the very bottom, I kind of like squeezed my way in there. I mean, I... I was the managing editor for my college newspaper and was honestly just kind of burnt out from it. 
um, and ended up stumbling into like my very first job out of college was at a healthcare consulting firm. And I was there for a few months. And one of my friends there decided she wanted to be a journalist. And she got a job, I think it was at Congressional Quarterly. And I remember thinking like, wait a minute, that was my dream. Uh, And so that kind of like gave me a little bit of a kick in the butt. And I think this job as an assistant on this bankruptcy newsletter for Dow Jones was the first thing I applied for. I knew nothing about business. I had gone to Penn and never taken a single class at Warden. So I think maybe intrinsically, I didn't have a huge um, intrinsic interest in business, but I got the job and I took it. And um, that's kind of how I got my foot in the door. So it's actually circumstance that you ended up writing for a business newspaper. It could have been any any newspaper or any actually magazine or now so much digital as well. Completely. But I think business journalism is kind of, it's a little bit easier to get your foot in the door. I think there's usually more opportunities there. I mean, it can be a little bit less sexy, right? So uh, I don't I don't think so, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> you are a business professor. So, but yes. um, but yeah, it was just kind of like, I just totally stumbled into it. Yeah. And one thing I've noticed about business journalists over the years, and so maybe you would qualify in your early years, uh, certainly not for a long time, is really smart young people that know how to write that know nothing about business. That's what I found. And this is true. There were writers of the Journal, New York Times, and they learned quickly because they were smart, but they hadn't really worked that much in a business situation. And so I remember um, we used to actually have a program at Tuck for Journalists where they'd come in for a week and kind of get a a crash course in in business. And of course, we did it because it's good to connect with top journalists and was fun. We would learn how to journalists look at our world, both business school and businesses. Uh, But uh, I certainly found that to be the case for the newest people. And so the question really to you is, first of all, have you seen that or you felt that? And what was the learning curve like to really get into a deep enough understanding? You could sit one-on-one with CEOs as you've done and have that conversation and ask the right questions. I mean, that's kind of the whole point of journalism, right? Like you're supposed to be a person who's an expert on writing and asking questions and you're curious. And so the idea is you can write about anything. You can learn about anything. I mean, people go from writing about fashion to writing about politics. But yes, when you're actually sitting in it, it can be a little bit intimidating, especially if you're young and talking to CEOs who are, you know, oftentimes older men, um, you know, they've come up in this world. But I, I really do believe that. Like, I really do believe that if you're just curious and bright and a good writer, you can kind of tackle anything as a reporter. Yeah. And I think that's generally held because that's the profile you see much more often. I'm sure probably you know people at the journal that would be on the other side as well that have worked in various different things and for whatever reason shifted over to journalism, though I'm thinking about who is going to do that given the the state of journalism, right? Young, smart people early on in their career that then make it into something special. (laughs) Some people Uh, do. Like some people have law degrees or or come mm. from finance. Um, but I think it kind of helps to have that outsider's eye. I mean, that's our job, right? Like to have that kind of skeptical eye and not really be in it, be like outside of it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. There's, there is a little bit of a connection to what academics uh, do because on occasion people ask me, well, you, know, you haven't run a company, you're not a CEO, but you're writing about them and you're researching them and you're telling us, well, CEOs never say this because they're too smart, <laughs> but several levels lower, they say, well, you're telling my boss or my bosses what they should do. And I've always found that to be a rather naive point of view. And maybe that's kind of what you're saying also as a journalist from the point of view of an academic. You study 
literally dozens to hundreds of situations and people and companies. And so you could start to see the patterns. And if you're working in a company, your total life experience is one or two or three companies, typically. It's a very big difference in kind of the depth and breadth of knowledge. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Plus, like you're you're inside of it, like you're you're part of it. Like really to me, journalism is being outside of the fray and like being able to to look in. I mean, it's a little bit of a judgy profession, right? Like that's our job to kind of like take an eye and judge and and draw things out, draw trends out. Have you gotten a lot of pushback over the years from things you've written, especially from CEOs or other senior executives? I mean, like the best case scenario is that everyone is mad at you, right? Like that's how you know you've done a good job. Like the people that you thought were going to love it, hate it. The other people hate it. Yeah, there there have been moments, but mostly I think people understand what we do. And I mean, honestly, I'm neurotic, so I just do so much fact checking. We, we really try to practice no surprises journalism. Obviously, we can't we can't like read out what's going to be in a story or anything like that. But we do extensive fact checking and kind of paraphrasing of all the factual stuff that's in there. So I try to kind of just get out ahead of it, and I want everyone to have expectations of what might be in a story about them, give them a fair chance to respond. So even if people aren't happy, they're never surprised. And I think that really helps. Yeah, right. And, you know, as you're talking, you're making me think also a very famous story of a colleague, maybe now a former colleague of yours, John Carreyou from the Theranos story. Uh, you talk about pushback. <laughs> I, I saw know. the movie. I saw the movie. Uh, but you were uh, you were in the journal offices when this was going on. You weren't. I don't know that you ever wrote about Theranos. Did you write about Theranos? I didn't the- write about Theranos, and I wasn't in some of those crazy meetings with that kind of pushback. What was the atmosphere like in the office? I mean, people saw David Boyce show up to go in the conference room, and that's bringing out your heaviest hitters. I mean, stuff like that happens, you know, I mean, and it's our job to kind of see it for what it is. And that's when editors really come in. I mean, that's when editors are really helpful for me as a gut check, because it can be hard. I mean, these people's job is to intimidate you, you know, and it's not about the truth necessarily. And it you kind of need that gut check. And for me, that's when it's really helpful to have colleagues and have editors to run things by them and make sure that you're, you're on track and how to kind of handle stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And how did it work in the earlier years at the journal? Although you came to the journal after, you know, five years at Dow Jones, so you had a lot of business experience. But did you work with, how does it work? How do you decide what to write about? And I know it's changed a little bit because you kind of have your own column in your own place now. But earlier you were, um, I think, more of a general leadership business reporter. Mm -hmm. So how does it work? How do you decide what to write about? You always have like a decent amount of autonomy. I mean, it's on it's on you to come up with story ideas. And it can be really hard in a feature-driven beat, which I've, I've pretty much been in since I stopped covering bankruptcy. When you're writing breaking news or you're covering a beat, a lot of the stuff just kind of builds on itself. You know, it's dictated by news that you're breaking, public announcements that are coming out. But for a feature beat, it's really it's really like you're spotting the trends and putting stuff together. And it can feel... A little risky, right? I mean, you have to you have to really be confident in what you're seeing and kind of those scoops of analysis, as we sometimes call them. But so yeah, a lot of it is you just coming up with ideas. I come up with ideas best from talking to people. That's where my best ideas come from, just hearing from people on the ground um, and kind of putting things together. It's like the slight offhanded comment at the end of a conversation, or you know, realizing that someone kind of offhandedly mentioned one thing that someone else mentioned two weeks ago. And then, yeah, some of the stuff comes down from editors, comes down from top editors who've noticed something and, and want to see it reported, comes down from an editor in another section who's noticed something that's kind of outside of their their purview. 
Um, and then some of it is always, you know, driven by the news, even when you're on a feature beat. I mean, so much of it is driven by what's going on out there and kind of having a, a smart take on that. Yeah, this is really interesting to me because the question I'm kind of asking you is what's interesting and how do you figure out what's interesting, which is a relevant question in dozens, if not every field uh, out there, certainly any of the arts, but you know, in business too, what's interesting to a customer. And what you said is you're kind of doing a little bit of pattern recognition because you're talking to a lot of different people. I would describe that as research and you're collecting data in a sense, whether Mm -hmm. direct or indirect. And then in your mind, you say, well, you know, this one said that and that one said that, and that sounds like it's somewhat connected. And that could be an interesting story to go on. I think the broader lesson goes far beyond journalism or, or research is people in work. I don't know if you've written about this itself, uh, cause I know you've written about, you know, creativity among other things, but, mm-hmm. uh, well, there's a lot of things to think about. Is there a payoff to creativity? But before getting to that, because in many jobs, there isn't. How do you figure out what's new and interesting when you're a, you know, you're not the CEO, you're a manager doing whatever you're doing, whatever department, and you got to do what your KPIs are telling you to do. You got to hit your targets. But then the way you get ahead in life is not just doing what everybody else told you to do. It's by creating something new. I don't know whether that's something that, you know, striking a chord and how you've thought about it or if you've thought about it in other places that have nothing to do with journalism or, or you know, my world and research. Yeah, I mean, it's creativity is like the hardest thing, right? I mean, this idea of innovation. I mean, people talk about this all the time and it's kind of this squirrely concept that sometimes we would roll our eyes at because like what do some of these, you know, jargony terms even mean? But it's important. I think you're right. I mean, there's this... I see it even in my generation, kind of this, this divergence between like, you know, what you have to do, you kind of follow certain steps. And and like you said, that's the case in many workplaces, too. And then how do you balance that with kind of when you're just out there on your own, and you have to figure something out and kind of come up with something yourself and go go in a new direction. It's really hard for me. I mean, I think a lot of it is about confidence, right? And kind of trusting your own intuition. And it also takes time. Like you said, I mean, Sometimes it takes years and years of work, which I think people don't realize. I don't think I realized when I was starting out. So many of my frustrations or insecurities, it was really just a matter of I needed more years in the job. We say it can take like over a year to get just adjusted to your new beat, to get sourced up, to like learn the lay of the land, like figure out who's out there. It just, it always seems to take longer than you expect. It's been my experience at least. Right. That's true. It's actually an interesting thing. I just started teaching our MBA students and they expect to figure out stuff very fast. And one of the wonderful things about school is um, they don't. <laughs> and that's why they're going to school. Otherwise, they could just kind of walk through the halls. Well, that was before COVID, but walk through the virtual halls and be done. But it takes a long time. But you said something about confidence as well. So gaining confidence is not a check the box thing. It goes on and on. I understand that. But how did you get to a place where you felt like you can have these conversations and ask these questions and, and also be able to say, you know, I'm, I'm Rachel and I can connect these dots and tell people something they haven't thought about. That's a big deal actually to do that. Yeah. You know, the conversation part isn't that hard. You can prepare, you can fake it till you make it a little bit. I mean, plus it's just your job, right? I mean, it's just, it's just what you have to do. Um, But feeling like you can connect the dots, that took longer for me. I think it was just a matter of churning out the stories, doing the work, having editors who believed in me, being edited pretty harshly for a long time, which doesn't feel great in the moment, but definitely makes you raise your standards and feel like you know what you're looking for and what you're doing. And then also knowing that you're part of a 
team, right? That other people are there to bat down your bad ideas and to carve a story in a way that's going to make it better. It really is a collaborative effort. And like you mentioned before, I mean, that I had years of that before I kind of ascended to now this position where I have a lot more autonomy and where it really is my voice. And that is a great thing, but it, I mean, it's a little bit of a scary thing too. And I'm glad I had so many years of so much collaboration before I got here. Yeah. So what makes a really good editor in your experience? I mean, you use the word harsh sometimes. There's a lot of learning, but you can say a little bit more about that. Some of it depends on the reporter and like good editors adjust themselves to a reporter and what they need in that moment. I've had editors who were brilliant wordsmiths. I mean, that was great for me because I I love writing. I actually, I kind of consider myself a better writer than reporter. I just love messing around with words. And so great editors, they make you concise. You know, they cut through a lot of the, the bullshit in your writing, really like getting down to kind of what is the heart of the story. And they just push you. I had a story that I wrote that I thought was great. And my editor took a look at it and she was like, this is great, but I think you need to like, it was about, um, it was one of the big examples was a restaurant. And she was like, I think you need to go out there. Like find, it was about a chain of restaurants. She was like, find, find one of these restaurant locations in the middle of the nowhere and you need to like drive there and go. And she could just see that. Like she could just see that that was what the story needed. It, so much of it is about like moving around the puzzle pieces and good editors just see like what puzzle piece you're missing. But also like that confidence bit, like knowing when to push and knowing when to say like, you did a great job. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, editors are managers. So, I mean, it's just like any any sort of good management principle that, you, you know, you study. <laughs> right. I'm hearing some clues around super bosses from what you just described. Yeah. You know, because it's not a one size fits all. You also made me think about the process of um, being a journalist. So, Tell me if this is, if I'm getting the major part. So step one, I know it's not necessarily step sequential, but step one is figuring out something interesting to write about. Could be assigned to you, but as you said, and especially in your case, you get to decide a lot of that. So you got to figure out the topic and then you got to kind of do the reporting, the research, the interviewing, the collecting the data. Then you got to kind of create the story around that, put it all together. And then you have to do the craft of writing, which is at least four steps. And then maybe I'm missing something in there, but at least four steps. So first of all, is that accurate? Uh, am I missing anything from the kind of the key steps that make up what a journalist does? That's accurate. I would say after that, then there's the editing process where especially somewhere like the journal can take a long time. It can involve going back to the drawing board. So going back for more reporting, more research. And then, like I said, for me, the last step is is really the fact-checking process, which I take pretty seriously, which is kind of looping back to people, you know, making sure everything's accurate, triple-checking everything. Right, right. So there actually is at least a fifth, if not a sixth stage. So the question I'm thinking of is, in, in many industries, have nothing to do with journalism, you're seeing this kind of disintermediation where different companies specialize in one part of this kind of chain of activities. Mm -hmm. And so in journalism, it might, and maybe there's a little bit of that because editors often say, Rachel, go and figure this out, or here's a story. So in journalism, you could have someone tell you, okay, this is the story to report on. And many times that happens, but then there's the reporting, there's the interviewing, there's all these different, and it sounds like for the most part, a journalist does them all, does every part. And that's different than some industries, isn't it? You're right. Like it's, you can't outsource any of it like it really has to be you it like all comes from you even like the latter parts 
where you're like during edits, when you have to go back and do more reporting or fact checks, like it, it's all you <laughs> as a person. It's in a way, it's really not a team sport. I mean, there's a lot of collaboration with, with editors, but even when you're working with someone else on a story, when you see two bylines, there's so much responsibility for your own part. Like it's so different to me than doing like a group project in college where maybe I could phone it in a little bit. Um, it really does come back to the journalist and it feels like a lot of pressure, at least for me in my experience. Is it ever the case that someone is really good at the investigation and doesn't write the story? It's the case that someone is good at the investigation and less good at writing. But I think everyone always writes their own stuff. Even if, I mean, sometimes, so if you're working with someone else on a story, usually there's like a lead writer um, and then there's someone who's feeding to them, but the person who's feeding to them is still feeding, we call it memos. So you're like, you're writing through your own reporting and like feeding blocks to the other person. So you're, in my experience, at least, like there's always that accountability and, and ownership from the reporter. I don't know. I mean, I've never really done another job, but the sense I get is that it's different from a lot of jobs in that like full accountability and full pressure. Yeah. Like you're really on the hook for your stuff. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, even in um, education, you could think about this intermediation, which mostly doesn't happen. But I've always wondered why it doesn't happen more often, especially higher education, so much trouble now, not just COVID related trouble, but it's been going on for some time. And that is, you know, there are people who do the research and even doing the research has four or five steps to it. And then there's people that teach. And I've always looked at the job of a university professor as the creation and dissemination of knowledge. And that definition really does easily split into two things. But, you know, for the most part, I don't see too many examples where, you know, let's say somebody like me writes a book or does the research and then hands it off to someone who can be on the network news is so smooth and such a great communicator right? And, or an actor. That's so do you think it would be better that way, you know, to split up some of these jobs more? Do you think we need more fragmentation? Would it be better? For some people, it would be. I know there are colleagues of mine and many others that are much more comfortable in the research world and less comfortable face-to-face -face with students and others. For me and many others, on the other hand, it's that interaction that brings it alive. And then I've always found when I'm teaching my own stuff, something that I created through my own research, the nuances that I could bring that are never written down anywhere, that were in the cutting room floor, they never got into a book or an article, is so much deeper. And so there's a really big plus. But the truth is that most academics do not teach what they do research on. And I don't know whether people recognize that or not. And I don't know if that's a dirty little secret, but it's something that has annoyed me for a while, <laughs> especially in business school where we're so applied. You know, it's a business school, law school, medical school. You're completely applied as a field. And whatever you're doing research on is something that you should have something to say should be of value to the people that consume that knowledge. And that's not always the case. I'm kind of going off a little bit on tangent. It's not exactly your, your scenario that you just described, but it does raise this question about why wouldn't we specialize? I mean, has this never happened in journalism where, you know, if I'm the investigative journalist, let's just say that I want my name on the byline. That's fair, but I'm not going to write a word. Why is that like a bad idea? Why is that not allowed in journalism? I mean, this might be like very unmillennial of me. Doesn't everyone have parts of their job that they're better at and parts of their job that are harder for them? And isn't it, you know, good to kind of push yourself mm -hmm. to do both parts? And I mean, there's also like some corrective function, right? I mean, like I said, everyone is better at some things. I consider myself a better writer than reporter. There's certainly people who are better reporters than writers. Editing can help with that. I think the number one thing at the journal 
is being a good reporter, especially for certain kinds of jobs, right? I mean, I'm now in a job where I think writing matters a little bit more. So you can also find your way to certain types of journalism that might be more geared toward what you're better at and, and kind of tone down. There are people who write, you know, not the kind of column that I write, but people who write columns, you know, mm-hmm. that are just more opinion pieces or pop culture pieces that don't have as much reporting in them. There are ways to kind of like work around it. I, I think it's good for people to have like full ownership of it. I think the system kind of corrects for mm-hmm. disparities there. Let's switch gears a little bit. And I don't know, this would be a long conversation, but I'm a long, long time reader of the journal in the New York Times. And bunch of other things, but those are the two primary every day. And there were days that I would uh, religiously read the editorial pages of both newspapers, and they would talk about the same thing. And it would be as if they were in two different worlds. And that is even more so probably today than it has ever been. So I know that there's a wall of sorts between the editorial side and the reporting side. But could you say a little bit about how that works and how one side does not contaminate the other or whether whether some flow of knowledge information is actually a good thing it's a pretty strict wall at the journal i mean you know from what i can see as a reporter we don't really have any any contact with those folks i mean we work in conjunction with our editors all the way up the news side but it's it's considered like a pretty strong thing there's just not meant to be interference we're kind of allowed to do our jobs and our jobs are considered important and their jobs are important too. And I think, you know, from the top, there's a lot of, you know, respect for what they do. I mean, our CEO, Almar Latour was talking about this recently. They value what the opinion side brings, but it's considered separate and we're just kind of allowed to do our jobs, which I think we all appreciate. Yeah. You know, that in that respect, it makes you also wonder why one newspaper needs to do both. And I know there's historic reasons. Newspapers were founded, many of them, by very wealthy families with strong political leanings. And that's still true in a lot of places, of course, but that they wanted to have a vehicle to share their point of view with the public. And now we're going back a couple of hundred years. That was the role of a lot of newspapers. So there's a historical reason and we're used to it. But I don't know that it's necessary. What do you think? Is it necessary? And you don't have to talk about the journal necessarily. It could be the New York Times, could be the Washington Post, could be, you know, Chicago Tribune could be, you know, the London Times, doesn't matter. Why is it necessary for there to be both reporting side and editorial side in a newspaper? I think it's helpful as long as it's marked appropriately. I mean, that's the big thing to me is like labeling it and making sure that people really understand what's what. But I, I mean, I appreciate reading smart voices with opinions. And I kind of prefer that there be less of a blur. So many places on the internet, there's so much of a blur. And so I appreciate that traditional newspapers label things and have this separation. I think it's helpful. Yeah, that's actually a good point. You really know where one is and where the other is, and they don't pretend to be mixing it. And very often you do see editorializing in the middle of reporting. And if that's an opinion, that's okay, because your opinion is in there, but it's fact-based, it's reporting-based. It's not generally a philosophical or a political opinion. You've written about lots of uh, really great, I mean, I love reading your articles, even if I'm not quoted, I have to say that right (laughs) (laughs) That's how you know they're really good. That's right. Those are the best. Do you have any favorites? Favorite articles. Um, I meant that's how you know it's really good if it's like not just my sources or my mom reading them of someone who's not related to them at all still likes reading them. Favorite articles. Yeah, I do. Especially from the past year, actually. 
I did a few pieces in January that I'm really proud of and a lot of the COVID coverage too. I did a piece in January about my experience being pregnant with my daughter. And it was my first, it was my first time using the word I in the journal. I mean, I like, I take, I mean, not just lack of opinion, but you know, political opinion in my pieces, but I also take kind of like the fact that I, you know, as a reporter should not be present very much as a person, you know, that it's about other people and other viewpoints. So it was strange for me to write about myself, but I'm, I'm really glad I did it. It was the hardest story I've ever written. And it was like a new level of terror when it was unleashed on the world. Like I'm used to being nervous when big stories drop, but I I felt like I was going to throw up. But um, it was incredibly meaningful for me, like an incredibly personally cathartic experience. And the, the feedback that I got from readers was incredibly moving. It was like incredibly impactful for me. That's like still my favorite story. I'm going to have it framed like outside my daughter's room. So... I remember the story. Could you share a little bit with listeners what the story was about? Yeah, yeah. I, I joke that it's about my, like, the fact that, like, what I am worst at is, like, bringing children into this world. Like, I just, it's not my, like, gift. Um, it's really about the last five weeks of my pregnancy with my daughter, which kind of devolved out of nowhere. I woke up one morning and I couldn't get her to move. Um, and I went into the doctor and she was still alive, but they noticed some kind of troubling signs. A measure of blood flow to her brain was off and her growth had slowed. And the the story is really about the fact that they didn't seem to know what was going on. And I was so surprised by this as both as a journalist and as the wife and daughter of physicians. It was kind of like a mystery. It was like a wait and see thing. And I was expecting like all this testing. Even if the news wasn't good, I was expecting answers. Um, And so it's about kind of just crawling through those five weeks, you know, of mystery as things just got weirder and weirder. I mean, I think it's about kind of my like emotional and like psychological, you know, just kind of how you get through that limbo stage. And it's also about medicine, right? Like I did, I did a decent amount of reporting um, with doctors talking about like, how could this still be? Like, how do we still know so little about pregnancy and, you know, where is the research taking us? And so it kind of follows those five weeks and it ends with her birth and she is wonderful these days. But yeah, that's what the story is about. And how old was she when you wrote the story? She was about a year. I mean, the story was something I was thinking about for months. It took me a long time to get up the nerve to pitch it. That's what Um, I was going to ask you. Yeah. Yeah. And I was grateful. I had like a couple people in my life who pushed me colleagues, especially who kind of believed that I, that I could do it and that I should do it. Cause it was such a departure. Right. And it felt so like, it felt kind of self-absorbed to think about doing something like that. Cause I had only written about other people and I hadn't really seen anything like that from my colleagues before. So I, I pitched it. It was actually similar to when I told you that um, a colleague of mine at my first job said that her dream was to go into journalism. And I was like, wait a minute, that's my dream. I, my husband had flagged for me that another publication, he was like, oh, did you see the Times did this huge thing on miscarriages? And I was like, I, you know, I'd already kind of had this idea. And I was like, I got to just pitch this. Like, I'm not going to let someone else write my story. So that was, got my butt into gear again. So I pitched it in October to our review section. I thought I would kind of swing for the fences. I didn't expect them to take it, honestly. But they did. They took it pretty much immediately. And then I worked on it for a couple of weeks. And I think I wrapped up writing it around the time of her birthday, which is in November. And then it ran in January. So it was, again, a long process, like everything at the journal. <laughs> but the actual writing, was it very quick? Because it was it was you, that story was there. Uh, you know, it's so funny. I um, 
I thought it would be. I'm a fast writer in general. Um, and the one thing that I did do was at the end, I took a long maternity leave with her. And at the last few days of maternity leave, which in my opinion are always the best days of maternity leave because they're days when you start transitioning your child back, but it's before you've started work and you can kind of like reflect on being a parent and like maybe even like take a walk or go to the beach for an hour or something. Um, so I spent those few days and I just sat down at my computer and wrote kind of like stream of consciousness, just everything that had happened. So I had this huge file. It was like 20 pages that I had already written. It, I mean, I knew it wasn't usable like for a real story, but it, it just got down all of the details. Um, and I had started taking notes on my phone even while I was in the hospital. Not because I thought I would write about it eventually, but just I like didn't know what to do. I was beside myself emotionally. And so many of the things that were happening, I found kind of like darkly funny. And I wanted to remember, I just, that's kind of like how I process things by writing things down. So I had, I had notes on my phone scattered around, and then I had this 20 page document. And I thought like, I'll just sit down and write about it. Like I, like you said, I mean, I felt like I'm a millennial, I'm like a natural oversharer, and I write for a living, like I'm a professional journalist, like how, how hard could this be? It was incredibly hard. I mean, I was like banging my head against the keyboard at first. Like I, I thought like, oh, it'll be hard to like relive the emotionality of it. It was like literally hard to find the words. Like it had been this huge experience in my life. And I'm used to kind of like writing from other people's experiences or from interview notes. It just felt like so big. I had a lot of trouble finding the words at first. So yeah, the writing process was much tougher than I was anticipating. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you said you got a lot of feedback from the, when the article went from a lot of, uh, a lot of moms as well, or across the board. And dads too. I mean, like, I think it was the most emails I've ever received from a piece and they were all so heartfelt people's personal experiences. A lot of women, a lot of men too. Um, people who are going through things like IVF or miscarriage right now, or people who told me about stillbirths they had had decades before, I mean, stuff so inspiring, you know, a woman who had had like loss after loss and journeyed across her state in the Midwest, you know, 50 years ago to see the one doctor who helped her eventually have a live birth. Notes from doctors, which really meant a lot to me. People saying like, like that this resonated with them or they wanted to hand it out to their patients. Yeah, it just, um, it was incredibly, incredibly meaningful. And people who wanted to see how Louisa was doing, uh, people were like <laughs> desperate to hear how she how she was, um, which was also, you know, yeah, that's new great. for me, but lovely. Yeah. So, you know, you wrote about something that was so, it's hard to imagine anything more personal than the birth of a child. And as a mom, it's the birth that you have done, you've created, and it was difficult and was challenging. And it obviously resonated with a lot of people. I mean, in some ways, that's like the most powerful, most important things to write about. How do you go back to writing about some CEO doing some dumb thing after <laughs> that? <laughs> it, did, it did feel kind of weird. You know, I, I mean, it helps that I love my job. Like, I love the stuff that I write about. It's, it's like, mm. very meaningful to mm. me. And I had had a big piece a week before. It was really funny. Like, I had had this other huge piece that got a lot of attention the week before this ran about executive assistance and kind of the, the decline of that profession and how the world of work had kind of changed that role. 
So I'd had these two kind of like back-to-back huge <laughs> hit, mm-hmm. hits, as it were, and it did feel a little weird to go back to real life. I was in the process of interviewing for the job that I currently have now. Um, so I switched from you know being a reporter on our management team to having my own column called the Work and Life column. And so that was a really long, intense like interview and application process. And I knew that was on the horizon. So I think that was like something to to focus on and to know that if I got that job, that it would be... It wouldn't be quite like this, right? It wouldn't be writing about my uterus every week, um, but it would be more of my voice and a little bit more of my experience too, occasionally. And so I think that was, it actually helped clarify kind of like what I wanted for my career next. I know you've thought about this. What do you think about writing a book that elaborates <laughs> on this topic? I mean, it could start with your own personal experience and go in many, many directions, not just specifically about you know, giving birth, but about, could be about women, it could be about life, it could be about the things that we actually care more about than most of the other things that we spend time on. I have totally thought about it, like any good journalist, you know, like I, mm-hmm. it's of course like I, a dream I know. to write a book. I know. It's not like we've talked about this before. People, I guess you just assume. But yeah, I've thought about it. I mean, I I thought about kind of going down that route right after the piece came out. And I decided that I wanted to pursue this columnist position first. Because taking on a new job at the journal is more than a full-time job, especially with something like having a column. And it just seemed like too good of an opportunity to not pursue for this moment for my life, for what, you know, for what it could mean down the line. And so that's kind of the direction I... I went in, but the book is always like, of course, on my mind. And you're right. Like it feels, it feels like what could be more important, right? It's, it's like endlessly fascinating to me, pregnancy and all the things that can go wrong and how many times they just end up going right, you know, by a stroke of luck and all the things that women and men go through to have children. I'm sure there's a book in there somewhere. Yeah. So are you uh, taking notes on your phone every now and then? Yeah, I have a file. I think everyone does, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. Not on this topic, but on uh, on various things. That's how I start all my books. I just take some notes and various things. And I'm a little bit at a crossroads as well because I've written these different business books and I I don't have uh, an interest in writing another business book. But I do. Yeah, I don't have anything new to say after 25 years of writing books and other things on it. I've, I've given what I've got, but I do have a different aspiration that I haven't quite figured out yet, but it has much more to do with wisdom and philosophy and life more generally. And so um, I just actually not that long ago gave a little talk to um, Dartmouth and Tuck alums as part of a summer series. I think we called it Reflections on Wisdom, uh, which sounds pretty kind of haughty, I think. But uh, it's just a few things that I thought of, and I'm starting to keep track of that. And, you know, in a way, everybody's got that. Everybody said, well, here's what I think about the world. Most people don't write it, and I may very well not write it either. But I feel like that could have the biggest impact of anything I would have done. It's interesting to hear you say that as a business professor, right? Like, I mean, just to hear that it all comes back to kind of people yeah. and philosophy and it is always about I mean I learned that lesson very early in my in my career because I well, I got my PhD in strategic management so you know strategy hardcore has a lot of economics in there and people historically don't play a very big role in strategy they kind of magically happen which is completely mm-hmm. correct but that's how most of the um, academic and a lot of consulting literature was on but I came to uh, realize that it's 100% about the people because it's a leader that decides that they want to do X and not Y. And that's what strategy really is. Just 
putting money on the table to go in one direction, not another, saying yes to this and no to another. And why does that happen? And it happens because of who they are and their experience and their biases and all kinds of other things. But what I just shared with you is going far beyond that because it's not about how you run a company. It's how you think about your own life. And it's actually kind of exciting. And so, yeah, I hope you end up going back to uh, the book project and not wait until you're in your 60s like I am to do that. <laughs> <laughs> then it'll be the grandmother project. <laughs> That's good uh, advice. Um, and I, hope, I hope you, I, I mean, I would read that book, Sid. So I hope you um, Thank hope you. you're going to. Well, that makes now, uh, let's see, three. My wife, my daughter, and Rachel. I'm going to read it. <laughs> let's talk about COVID a little bit. And you've also written about your, you just mentioned your husband, and I guess your father or mother or mm-hmm. both are doctors. My father, yeah. Your father. But your husband, you know, I remember reading this article about how he would go off in the morning. I'm not sure if this was March or April, what you were referring to, when it was really bad in the uh, yeah. in, in New York, New Jersey, uh, Connecticut area. And he'd come home and he'd uh, have to take everything off, shower before he'd come in and the kids. And, and I thought, boy, that is really... I mean, that's another example of something that's completely visceral and real, and you can really feel it as a as a reader. But I want to ask you what that entire experience was like. You must have been really afraid for your husband and for for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it felt kind of like the the thing with my daughter's pregnancy was like a training mm. ground, right? Like, it, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, and it was so it was weird with my job too because I, you know, I started writing about it like in late February, and I'm I'm kind of like a anxious planner to begin with. It was super on my radar. And then yeah, March, March rolled around. It was kind of like watching it happen in slow-mo, you know, because on the one hand I was writing about the business aspect especially of it and unemployment. And then yeah, Dave would come home and they're just there wasn't enough PPE at first. I mean I think we've gotten so used to it at this point. It's almost hard to remember kind of Mm -hmm. how viscerally scary it was. But it was it was terrifying. And it felt like there were so many people going through so much hardship and I wrote about a lot of it, right? Like people, you know, I was interviewing people, restaurant workers who, you know, weren't going to be able to feed their families. I mean, it was, it was terrible for so many people. And for us, it was just kind of watching other people, some other people in our lives kind of be able to hunker down and just feeling like we, we just couldn't figure out how to like really protect ourselves. So we we're kind of like making this stuff up, right? Like you would come home and shower and it wasn't like there, you know, I'm a journalist. Like I'm used to like asking an expert and them telling me what to do. And there was kind of, there was no one to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. You just kind mm-hmm. of made it up and figured it out. And that, that part of it felt really scary to me and not being able to do some of the things, you know, you drive down the highway and there would be big signs like stay home. And, you know, it's like, I mean, I can stay home. Like I'm so privileged, you know, as a journalist to be able to work from home, but like I couldn't protect my family in that way. It was really hard. I mean, it was like the, my primary concern was him and his safety and him staying safe and our family staying safe. Although like everyone, you mostly worry about your partner, right? You're like, I feel like I could handle it if it like came home to us, but it's, you know, it's you. And then the kind of secondary concern was like, how was I going to keep working? Because our daycare closed and um, Dave had to go to the hospital every day. So there was no shifting on and off. And the, the kids were one and two at that point. And again, I mean, that was like a secondary concern. His health was the biggest concern. But I felt, I felt like writing was giving me like purpose and like what I was doing was really important, especially because at that point I kind of couldn't bring myself to write some of the like funnier or lighter 
COVID stories. And I think there's a place for that for sure. And I, you know, I've since written some of those and I'm glad that we still had an A-head every day, which is the, the kind of quirky, funny story that runs on page one about things mm-hmm. like people giving each other, you know, themselves haircuts. Like I, I see the value in that. I was emotionally in such a different place. So worried about Dave and kind of our life that it was, I just tried to focus on the kind of meteor stuff, low wage workers, like people who were really suffering. And it was so hard, you know, listening to their stories. And I still, I mean, I think about it all the time and people have been through so much. So I certainly, I don't like revel in anyone's pain, but I felt, I felt like I was doing something important and I didn't want to, I wanted to figure out a way to keep doing that work, you know, if he had to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And, you know, you also mentioned you actually had two kids, one and two at that time, mm-hmm. no daycare. And I know this from my own niece and nephew that are, I'll say, generally around your age as well. And they each have, well, one has two kids and the other has one, one on the way. And they've made different. Now the daycares have opened. This mm-hmm. is in Canada. In Canada, and I think even in most places in the U.S., they're open too. They just opened recently. My niece has decided to continue working from home and she has a big job working in a hospital. She's not a doctor, but she's got a big, big job there. And her husband has a different job. They both work from home and they're both, and both kids are staying home for now, or we're staying home throughout the summer when daycare was opening. And then the other one who has one kid, one kid in the way, uh, as soon as the daycare opened, and I was just talking to him, he said, we have to, we can't, we both have jobs. We can't function. We're unhappy. We're difficult. It's not fair for the, for the kid and the kid in that case, I think is 18 months. So very, really the same age as yours. I don't know if you've written about that, but that's like so practical, so basic, but very scary because that's a, and he talked about it, my nephew. We realize there's more risk of letting our daughter go to a daycare. This is not at home daycare. This is going to a daycare. Mm -hmm. We know that we don't think, obviously we don't think anything's going to happen. We know the research has come out so far, but that's, that's quite a decision to make. And the fact that both my niece and my nephew ended up with opposite decisions is interesting. But that's, I bet a lot of people are, not a bet, I know a lot of people are dealing with that and have to make a call. Now, we're September now, right? And schools are reopening around the country, public schools, elementary schools, private schools, and some universities, we'll see how many will stay open. And so that decision is being made. So it's interesting that parents have to make, these are decisions that are medical and philosophical and and economic all at the same time with far less than full information. Yeah. I mean, in a way it's like almost like the pregnancy thing, right? Like no one can tell you, like you're used to like asking your pediatrician and trusting your pediatrician or having other experts in your life. And no one can kind of tell you what call to make. And it's like every decision is a right decision and every decision is a wrong decision. And, and no matter what decision you make, there's so much precariousness. I mean, if you send your kid back, like any day could be the day that they, you know, I mean that either there's a COVID scare or just that your kid has the sniffles and they, and they have to go home because there are really strict policies now. It's, I don't know if I had like fully appreciated how much the way that I think, especially a lot of women are able to work is like, consistent, reliable childcare, like knowing that your kid is in safe hands and that you will have these hours to do your job. And without that, like even just mentally or emotionally, I mean, it's, it's incredibly difficult. It's just, it's incredibly difficult. The school question, the daycare question, it's just, there's like no right answer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You also talk about experts, you know, for your own pregnancy, but now what we're talking about with COVID and more knowledge is being created, but you said you were really surprised that 
that these tests weren't coming. We, I didn't get an answer right away about what was the right thing to do for my child. And I wonder whether as a society, we've over relied on experts now. I mean, that's a statement I have to couch because there are <laughs> obvious, uh, obvious parts of modern society that don't pay any attention to experts. But I'm going to say it, a lot of people, a lot of people do. And experts, you know, for fast moving, changing things, uh, or maybe we, we overestimate, you know, what the experts say. And, you know, there's the gut instinct that people have. Even in business, you think about, you know, do you do what the quote rational thing is or should you go with your gut, your instinct? And every manager I ever spoke to talks about that issue. And I've never met someone who didn't think that their intuition wasn't the right intuition, but some of them were smart enough to do the analysis <laughs> as well, <laughs> just to cover themselves. We're doing that in everyday life. We have to be our own expert and that's not possible because we don't have enough time or expertise to be the expert, you know, to go to school and study everything. It's a big challenge. I'm sure that that plays out in a lot of different uh, places. I mean, even for an employer, you're talking about the restaurant industry, for an employer, you have to make an incredibly important call. You had to make an incredibly important call early on, which is you furlough people, you let people go, put them in a position to be able to capitalize on. Capitalize is not the right word because it's not a particularly great, but get whatever the government is giving. You're making these fundamental decisions that could affect your life and the lives of uh, people around you for years to come. And you're making it with far less than full information. Uh, I think in general, we don't appreciate how common that type of phenomenon is and how ill-equipped so many people are for that. Yeah, I mean, in a way that like is business, right? Like making all these decisions with so much uncertainty. But th this, it was like the whole world, there was so much uncertainty. And yeah, I mean, that, like I said, that was the theme of my pregnancy too. And I think it's the rise of experts and also the rise of like testing and data. I mean, you know, for pregnancy, you can find out the gender at like nine weeks pregnant. You know, there's all this genetic testing that you can do. There's like these micro deletions. And I, I was familiar with that because um, I had done fertility treatments to my son. So I knew about like this whole world and I just thought like, that everything would just like jump into action and that there would, you know, be all this stuff we could look at to tell us what to do. And I was shocked that it was kind of like just watch and wait. And I think COVID, I mean, COVID was the same way, right? Like I, I was shocked that there wasn't, there was no guidance for like partners of essential workers or essential workers in general. I mean, and I saw the same stuff. You're right. Like from businesses. I mean, I can't remember an ice cream shop owner in Seattle who I was interviewing who just, I mean, no one knew what way any of this was going to go. And people yeah. still don't know. I mean, New York City, like no one knows what the fall is going to bring. It's really hard. I mean, in a way, it's like real life, right? Like it's um, it's like being an adult. It's just it, kind of. It is, but it is magnified because the consequences of these decisions now, because of the turmoil that's going on, they're bigger than ever. They're bigger than right. our typical decision that we're making, right? Right. It's so um, high stakes. So you've written about you know changes during COVID from remote work to uh, managing. What are the benefits you should get and other things? Do you think uh, there's anything that's happening now? And remote work is the one most people think about. But among the things that are happening now because of COVID, which might stay and have legs for a longer period of time? I mean, we could start with remote work because everyone's talking about it and it looks like it's not going to go we're not going to go back 100% to where we were before, but other aspects of the changes that are going on. What are you seeing from your own reporting and, and analysis that you think is going to be really different in six months or a year when we're hopefully back to normal? I mean, hopefully remote work, but also like all kinds of flexibility. I think there was a sense that like flexibility was something you kind of like quietly raised your hand for. Maybe if you were a mom coming back from maternity leave and you made like a one-off bargain and in turn, you know, you kind of never asked for a raise or, you know, it was some sort of favor. And um, 
I think that what this has done is hopefully, you know, make a lot of this just kind of out in the open policies that everyone can kind of tap, maybe less of a thing that could hurt your career, you know, and for remote work or for flexing your hours or just for kind of being a whole person. I mean, I I don't know. I like the cynical part of me says like, maybe this won't last, but you know, there's Mm -hmm. companies certainly say that they are recognizing what people are dealing with, whether it's a sick family member or these childcare issues, they kind of can't look away because it's so global, right? Like before it was maybe like you have to support one employee who's going through one specific thing, or you don't even know because they don't share it. But now everyone sees it. It's like hard to ignore. And so I don't, I don't know. I mean, like my hope is that like this empathetic, you know, kind of style of, of leadership and doling out of benefits will, will be here to stay. I think a lot about the, like the urban office and high rises. And if we'll see kind of return to these suburban workplaces, you know, where you come in twice Mm -hmm. a week, kind of, you know, people talk about like, it's not just that everyone's going to work remotely full time. It's more of like a a hybrid approach, which I can see happening, which I do think is really probably ideally the best in terms of people having productivity, collaboration, a balance of quiet time and, and working with others and innovation. Um, And then probably the last thing I think about is geographic moves. I mean, that's something I've kind of always been interested in is geographic mobility. And we wrote one of the first stories on the topic. I think it came out in in early June and we started reporting it in maybe April about people moving permanently now that they're kind of untethered from the office. And I'm curious what that does to these kind of metropolitan areas like San Francisco, Silicon Valley, New York City, where it's kind of this is where you went to get a job. And what does it mean when you don't have to be there? I think it's going to be really interesting. Right. It's a gigantic uh, question. And there'll be things that are going to happen that we cannot predict that's going to affect that. And you think about New York, New York recovered from 9-11. It took a while, but New York recovered stronger than ever. And New York recovered from the 2008 recession. I don't think New York is dead. I love New York, but I do. I just think the way that people think about jobs and where they have to be to kind of get their career going or take that next step. Yeah, I think that that might change. I want to know what people are going to say that all the people buying homes and uh, moving out of New York City or San Francisco or L.A. or what have you uh, and moving into suburban homes uh, when they've always been city people. And they're doing it because of COVID, not because they want that necessarily want that lifestyle change before that. What that's going to be like, that's actually an interesting story. You come back a year from now and say, so, yeah, it's safer, but there's all kinds of other things that happen that are not what you have in the city. So for people that move for COVID safety reasons, as opposed to they want more space for their family or they like to live in the suburbs or what have you, that's an interesting thing to see what their settling up is going to be when they come back and they think about it. How many are going to actually move back to the city? There's a huge trend of people that used to live in the city. They moved to the suburbs because they wanted to go for, I don't know, better schools or more space for their kids. And then the kids are grown up. They're off to college, whatever. They move back into the city. There's a lot of people that I know and a lot of people that that's happened. And that's because cities are spectacular in so many ways. And New York is at the top of that list. But now we got something different. So the jury is definitely out. Nobody knows exactly how they're going to think or feel about this a year from now, let's say, or even even before that. That would be an interesting story to explore. So I'm getting, I'm pitching you on a story. Yeah, I know it's a good one. The regretful <laughs> suburbanites. I, I would take yeah. that on. I'll put it on my list. Okay. Uh, add it to the hundred other things on the list. <laughs> Rachel, we're just about out of time. I like to 
wrap up by asking an advice uh, question. And I've interviewed and talked to people in the SIDCast and the podcast that range from mid to late 20s up to uh, 80s. So everyone has a different time frame in here and you're smack in the millennial generation. But the question really is advice you'd give to yourself. But it's advice you'd give to yourself when you were 20 years old or 21 years old. If you can magically go back in time and sit down next to the 21-year-old Rachel who's sitting in a library reading the Wall Street Journal or what have you, or whatever you were doing. And you say, if there's one thing you want to know, now I bet you were not, but (laughs) I threw that out so you can impress your editors. If there's one thing you really wanted to know, if there's one thing you really want to know about life that is really, really important, what, what would it be? What would you have said to yourself, you know, the 21 year old Rachel? You know, I think it's about rejection. I think I like really didn't understand that rejection just comes with the territory. I was like shocked, or not shocked, shocked is the wrong word. I was so upset. I mean, it took me like years to recover from like this, you know, rejection, you know, not getting an an award in journalism, you know, not like not getting a job. There were so many jobs I didn't get. And when I finally got this job, that was really a dream job, you know, seven years ago to cover management and careers at the journal. Like I found out that like everyone else had been rejected before they made it there too. And it was, it was shocking to me. Like I just hadn't realized that that was just part of the territory. I don't know if that's a millennial thing, something incorrect that we're teaching our, you know, our kids these days, Mm -hmm. especially kind of anxious, high achiever types. Um, But I I wish I'd known that that's just like part of the deal and you just have to move through it. And not to take Boy, it so that, personally. That is really a great bit of advice. What I particularly like about it is it's very difficult to share that advice with young people that you want them to go for it. You want them to be achievement oriented. You want them to believe they can do it. But the reality is that we end up failing at a lot of stuff and failing is even not the right word. It might not be the right time, the right place, or you might not be ready for something, but you do get, I'll use your word, you do get rejected for all sorts of things in life. And it happens and it doesn't just stop when you're 21 or 25 or 30. In academia, I the acceptance rate for a top journal is usually four or five percent, which means 95 percent of articles get rejected, which is kind of a crazy thing. But we get used to it pretty quick or we're out of business. You know, you have Mm -hmm. to be able to deal with rejection. If you can't deal with rejection, you just made me think of that as an academic in any field. If you cannot deal with rejection, you fail in your career because you have to be able to deal with it. you got to build resilience. you got to bounce back up. And I'll say one other thing that I learned and then I'll ask you whether the application to journalism or other things you've studied or report about fits. I've learned that when you get rejected for an article and you look at the commentary, there's pages of commentary. It's not just, you know, I don't like you. I don't like this. Although it feels that way. <laughs> they uh, all the details of exactly. Yeah. Oh, all sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. Pages and pages. It's really incredible. And what you have to do is say, okay, I'm going to learn from this. There are things that I could have done differently and better, but I also know that they're wrong because I'm great. You got to have that confidence. You got to believe that you can do it at the same time as you got to be completely open to learning to try to get better. You got to do both at the same time. And they're actually kind of tricky to do both at the same time because you need, uh, I often say you need a touch of arrogance. Too much is really not good. A touch of arrogance is not a bad thing in a lot of careers where you get beaten down time and time again, and you just got to get up. You got to have that confidence. I don't know whether that is something you've seen or thought about in journalism or in other fields that you've looked at, but it just occurred to me. Oh yeah. Confidence is like the thing. I mean, you realize that like, there's no, I think for a long time, I thought there was like this magic 
thing that other people were doing that I wasn't doing or some intrinsic thing that mm. they had that I didn't. And it's, I mean, and I think of that all the time, like with parenthood, you know, it's not just like in journalism. It's just turns out it's not true. Like everyone's just kind of like figuring it out, you know, and oftentimes like confidence and just being willing to raise your hand again is kind of the thing that distinguishes you. Right. That's exactly right. Raise your hand again and gets back to the expertise discussion we just had also. We think the world's loaded with experts and yeah, there are plenty, but we have to figure it out ourselves and we're not always going to be right, but we shouldn't assume everyone's got the right answer because very, very few in business, very, very, very few have the right answer. Most people that have had one right answer are going to be wrong three or four times after that. These are the types of things that I might write about one day because they get to philosophy and wisdom that you learn about experts as one example, certainly about rejection and dealing with it. So it's a great bit of advice. I've asked this question now to, I don't know, there's must be over 70 episodes that I've done of the podcast and no one's ever given me that answer. So really, no, I've gotten lots of fantastic, interesting answers, but not, not this one on rejection. Rachel, thank you so much for talking to me, answering all of my questions for a change. I've really enjoyed it and getting to know you a little bit better, but also especially bringing your story to our audience. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Sid. This was a delight. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.